Section number 77 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emilio Caputo. The World's Story, Volume 15. The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 77. With an Ambulance at Verdun, 1916, by William York Stevenson. The author of the diary from which this selection is taken is an American volunteer who succeeded Leslie Buswell as driver of Ambulance No. 10. He was assigned work at various parts of the front in France until finally he was put on duty at Verdun during the Great Battle. The Editor Such a splendid trip! We came down through the Senli, the town where the Boche did their worst. They burned every tenth house and shot the citizens, including the mayor. Then we came along the valley of the Marne and saw the whole of the great battlefield. A perfect day, and the lieutenant ran slowly so that the convoy should get a chance to take the views. At that we are tonight, June 23rd, at Chalons, some ride. Every bone in my body aches, and it's hard even to keep awake to write this. Woody, one of the ambulance drivers, got an awful spill. He nearly went to sleep, a very common thing after one has been driving for a great many hours. Sort of hypnotism. His car turned turtle but threw him clear. I find the only thing to do is to try to compose a letter or a verse, or remember songs one half knows. It keeps one's mind out of that hypnotic rhythm. Here I am, on a wonderful soft down bed with sheets. The Russians are here also. The lady of the house where I am quartered says that, last night, there was a Boche aeroplane raid, but it did no damage, except it made her baby cry, with the noise. We passed many smashed-up villages today, including Sermaise and the famous Vitry-le-François, the turning point of the Battle of the Marne. As we neared Bar-le-Duc, we passed the 10th Cavalry, every man leading an extra horse. All the horses are little, quick-acting animals of the polo pony type. They looked very efficient. We also passed the 79th Deline, returning from the front. The men were haggard and done, but a fine-looking lot. Ten days should put them on their toes again. We arrived at bar le duc yesterday, June 24th, at 5 o'clock, and had our tents up and kitchen working by 6 p.m. to the astonishment of a neighboring camion motor truck section. We turned in at 9 o'clock. At 11 p.m. a call came to go at once to Verdun, as there had been a big gas attack. We chucked everything out of our cars, got masks and tin derbies, and beat it. We made the outskirts of Verdun, 50 kilometers by 1 a.m., over fearful roads and not a car broke down, though there were several blowouts. We ran into the Norton section, and our number two. They were very much surprised, as they knew we had only arrived that evening to find us right on the job. As we loaded the coughing men into the cars, the guns were going like mad, and a terrific explosion occurred, either a mine or a powder depot. Each car took five men, and we landed them back on bar le duc as soon as the day was breaking. Today we are taking things easy and awaiting orders. The man who sat beside me told me that the reason they got caught by the gas was that they had taken their masks off to see more clearly as the ground was treacherous and full of shell holes, and some of the gas was still lurking in the low places. 
No rest for the wicked. We had only just got thoroughly repaired and straightened out after our trip when we were called out again, this time to a little east of Redun at 3 a.m. Well, we galloped out over that awful road again, dodging two solid lines of camions and guns for the whole 50 kilometers. The French, by the way, call it the Voie Sacrée, Sacred Way, as when the railroad was cut, the use of this road for carrying supplies saved Verdun. Nobody got into much trouble, however. When we got to Dugny, we found it packed with ambulances. There had been another gas attack. Chapman, the American airman, was killed yesterday near here. He shot down three Boches before he got his own. We saw his wrecked plane. It develops that the reason we were sent for was only partly to concentrate the American ambulance, but also for the purpose of replacing a French section of 20 cars, of which only 10 are now working, and whose drivers are about all in. Five of the men got caught in a tunnel the other night when two Austrian 380s exploded, one at either end and a third on top. The air concussion threw them some 15 or 20 feet, first one way and then the other, while not only the glass headlights, but even the floorboards of their cars were blown in. June 29th. We had been moved to Dugny on the Meuse, six kilometers from Verdun. It is to be our headquarters, and we are to run up to the Poste de Secours from here. We were taken to Fort Tavon, the Cabaret, and other Poste de Secours. Well, at the Cabaret, the Germans began shelling the series of batteries which were all along the road. Some twenty huge, at least they seemed huge to us, shells fell all around us. This was the heaviest shell fire I have yet been under and I was glad to have something to do to keep my mind off it. Two men about a hundred yards away were decapitated, and there were a number of dead horses about, and I can see we are going to have a lively time. Coming back, an incendiary shell set a big house on fire on the outskirts of Verdun, and the shells came whirring rapidly. We passed several smashed ammunition wagons, and one ambulance all in pieces. After dinner we saw some German prisoners going by. They had just been captured, and were a bedraggled lot, but were neither extremely young nor extremely old, indicating that there is still a pretty good bunch of Boches left. We started in our service this evening, and calls began to come in right at dinner time. We send a car out every 25 minutes a night, but in the daytime we go every hour and a half. There's practically no repose. July 2nd. I had an amusing trip with a captain this morning. I had been running all night from Tavans in the cabaret. The Germans made an attack near Vaux and our Lille de Barrage stopped it. We drove past some 100 guns, 75s and 105s, whose muzzles project over the road, and when they fire as we pass an incessant tir de rapide, and the noise is enough to break the eardrums. I stuff cotton in my ears, and keep my mouth open. The sheets of flame come half across the road, and the concussion has even broken some of the little windows in the cars. Well, this captain was at Dugny, and asked me to take him up to Devon's, as he was going on his way to the front lines. Being daylight, it was against our official rules, but, individually, we endeavor to be of as much aid as we can to the army, and often waive such rules. When we passed the cabaret, we could see the German sassies, observation balloons, and of course they could see us. At Tavon's, the captain suggested that I should carry him on the Mardi Gras redoubt, close to the lines and in plain sight. I told him I was under his orders. So we proceeded, passing more dead horses and all sorts of smashed stuff, and winding our way around huge craters. 
At last we got there. In thanking me, he said some complimentary things and remarked that he had asked a member of another ambulance section to take him up here a few days ago, and that he had refused, although it was still only dawn. Incidentally, I picked up three blessés at the redoubt, who were about to be taken the couple of miles down to the cabaret poste de secours on poussé poussé little two-wheeled push-carts which carry one stretcher. This meant the saving of an hour or two for them. When I got back here, I found Will Irwin and another magazine writer being shown the fighting by Piet Andrew. Unfortunately, they missed the Tire de Barrage, which alone is worth crossing the ocean to see. A solid line of flame several kilometers long, crowned by exploding shrapnel and all kinds of colored lights and flares, and a noise so deafening as to make one's head reel and one's brain stop working. There were 1,100 guns working just as fast as they could, about 25 shots a minute, for an hour in the space of about two square miles. No words of mine can do justice to that tir de barrage across the Etain road. I have been scared in my life, but never like that. The German incomers, incoming shells, one regards as luck. One hears the warning whistle and thinks it's coming right at one, and it falls a hundred yards away. Again, one hears the whistle and regards it as distant, and she blows up right beside one. There's a cheerful uncertainty that means bad luck if one is hit. But when obliged to drive in front within twenty feet of those seventy-fives and others, with the flame apparently surrounding you and unable to hear or think, for the stunning noise, you don't know whether the motor is going and you also wonder where the roads are going. They alone are enough to kill a man. You also hope the gunners are on to their job, as some new recruits might aim a foot too low. Then, occasionally, a badly timed shot bursts at the muzzle, which means exactly above the car. Believe me, I'd rather take a chance with the erratic germ incomers than have to pass that often. If I get out of this without being permanently deaf, I'll be lucky. Just as the old Fokkers, German airplanes, beat all other warplanes in the new ports, French, beat the Fokkers in point of speed, the Boches have suddenly, within a few days, introduced a new Fokker much faster than the fastest new port. Johnston, one of the American ambulance men who went into the Aviation Corps and is in the camp at Bar-le-Duc, told Sponigal today that he and his squadron were caught by surprise over the German lines and only escaped by the greatest luck. The French and English, of course, will immediately start to build an even faster plane. But temporarily, the supremacy of the air appears to have been snatched from the Allies, and even our aviators admit it. July 11th. In the afternoon, the Lieutenant, Spondigal, and I went up to Fort Dugney and had the luck to see another attack on Sueville. For once it was clear and the sight was marvelous. The whole hill smoked. We also saw the American Escadrille go into action, six of them, but they disappeared in the smoke far back of the German lines. The big bombardment was followed by a gas attack between Vaux and Duamont, and the fight was fierce all night around Damlou. We began to get calls around 5 a.m., and thereafter ran all day under heavy fire. I saw a bully 155 shell on the road and wanted to pick it up, and had already slowed down when one burst within 30 feet of the car. I changed my mind and moved on. Nearly all the men we carried were gassed. They kept coming in all day from the trenches, or rather shell holes, in the Bois Fumont and the Fraudeterre near Fleury. We alone carried some 1,200 of them, and believe me, it was some strain. 
many new dead horses along the road. The gas gets them, even the smallest whiff, and of course they have no masks. Even at 10 a.m. there is still enough to make our eyes smart. The Germans tried a new dodge, a sort of tir de barrage of 77 gas shells. They do not make much noise, just about as much as a yacht cannon, but the gas spreads fast. It was about 40 feet high and extended for about 200 meters along the Etain Road. The men who were caught by it all admitted they had taken off their masks for one reason or another. It is not amusing to talk to men who don't know they're as good as dead. End of section 77. This recording is in the public domain.